Good morning to everyone. I am Professor Jan Bender-Shetler from the History Department, but this morning I'm representing the Yoder Public Affairs Lecture Committee, and I want to welcome each one of you to convocation this morning. And I also want to remind you, out of respect for our speaker and our guests at Goshen College, that you please turn off all electronic devices while you're in this space. With the national elections just around the corner, we want to take some time to consider our own involvement in politics this morning. Our speaker this morning, David Courtright, will also present the Yoder Public Affairs Lecture on Tuesday evening, that's tomorrow night, entitled The Power of Nonviolence, Lessons from the Unarmed Revolution in Egypt. Uh, so come at 7.30 at the Reith Recital Hall over in the Music Center and join us as we consider this important topic. Also, another event this afternoon at 4 o'clock in um, NC17, there will be an interdisciplinary forum where students, faculty, and staff will be sharing their personal stories of connection to the Arab Spring, particularly Egypt and Syria. It's a great way to hear from people who can give us a much more human dimension of the, these important global events. We're grateful to Frank and Betty Jo Yoder, uh, who endowed this lectureship in public affairs that's responsible for bringing David Courtright to campus over these two days of events. The Yoder Public Affairs Lectures were established in 1978 to enable faculty, students, and the local community to hear nationally recognized speakers address important current issues. Past lectures have included scholars, activists, journalists, Nobel Peace Prize winners, ambassadors, and others with important insights into current issues. I'm sure you will agree that the topics we will address over the next two days are of critical global significance, and we look forward to these presentations. I've asked Professor Joe Lichty from the Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies Department to now introduce our speaker, David Corbett. For many years, David Courtright has been a wonderful friend of Goshen College through teaching, speaking, other forms of support. But most of you probably don't know him, so it's my privilege to make the introduction. David's peace career stretches from his decision as an active duty soldier in the 1960s to publicly uh, oppose the Vietnam War, to his current role as Director of Policy Studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at Notre Dame. In between, David's accomplishments have been such as to make a brief introduction, I was going to say difficult, but I'll say impossible. So rather than enumerate his accomplishments, I want to characterize them. To my mind, the outstanding characteristic of David's work has been that for decades he has straddled the line between activism and scholarship concerning some of the most complex and important peace issues of our times and making contributions at the highest level in both arenas. That's an invaluable gift. In 2006, David failed to publish a book. This seems to have, this seems to have occasioned an existential crisis of sorts because he hasn't let it happen again. Um, since then, he has published Gandhi and Beyond, Nonviolence for an Age of Terrorism, Peace, a History of Movement and Ideas, 
Then a second edition of Gandhi and Beyond, followed in the last two years by Towards Nuclear Zero and Ending Obama's War, Responsible Military Withdrawal from Afghanistan. He's currently working on a, on a book on the unarmed uh, revolution in Egypt, the topic of tomorrow night's lecture. So those titles will give you a sense of the range and importance of his concerns. Publishing books not being enough, he also works as a consultancy to UN agencies, various peace organizations and foundations, to governments. He teaches at Notre Dame. He edits the Kroc Institute's excellent online journal, Public po uh, Peace Policy, and he blogs at davidcartwright.net, which I'd highly recommend. Posts in the last couple months have included, uh, most recently, Solidarity with Malala, then Give Peace a Chance in Afghanistan, The Folly of the Iraq War Redux, Help, Help Afghan Women End the War, and Seven Points on the Iranian Nuclear Standoff. David, thanks for being a friend of Goshen College, and thanks for speaking to us this morning. Thank you very much, Joe, and thank you, Jan, for inviting me. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here in Goshen with friends, back what used to be my hometown. Uh, and it's an honor to be invited to be part of the Yoder Public Affairs Lecture and to address all of you here this morning. Eight days from now, we as citizens will face a momentous political choice. For some of us, the approach of Election Day poses a difficult personal ethical choice. Should we participate in the political process? Is it moral to dirty our hands in the rough and tumble world of conventional politics? In the Christian tradition, we have the doctrine of the two kingdoms, two realms of existence, two distinct ethical frameworks, God and man, divine perfection versus the sinful ways of human affairs. The church and the community of believers seeking to follow a strict set of ethical guidelines, the state and the political order operating on another decidedly less holy set of principles and practices. In the Anabaptist tradition, we are sometimes taught to stand apart from the fallen political order, to preserve our moral purity and concentrate on personal piety. Our country and most liberal democracies are founded on the constitutional principle of the separation of church and state. Freedom of religion is protected but the church and the state shall not impose on the other. These are valid religious and constitutional principles, but do they mean that the faithful Christian should shun the world of conventional politics? Do they provide justification for those who on conscience refuse to vote? Do they validate the argument of those who, perhaps on anarchist principles, see the state as inherently unjust and militaristic? The moral critique of the state is valid. It is an instrument of coercion based on the willingness to use force. But is this an argument for withdrawing from the political order? I think not. And we'll argue here that, on the contrary, we who seek to follow the one must be engaged in politics and have a moral duty to help bend the social order toward ethical values. 
Jim Wallace of Sojourners speaks of the need for spiritual politics, which he describes as a commitment to political change that is guided by religiously inspired ethical values. Gandhi was the foremost practitioner of spiritual politics. He attempted to reconcile the often coarse demands of political struggle with the higher principles of religious and moral belief. Men say I am a saint losing myself in politics, Gandhi said. The fact is I am a politician trying my hardest to be a saint. Gandhi viewed politics as an, exp as an expression of religious commitment, a way of seeking truth and working for justice. He applied the principles of nonviolence to develop a unique and highly effective method of social action and political struggle. As George Orwell said of Gandhi, inside the saint or near saint, there was a very shrewd political leader. The genius of Gandhi and the basis for his remarkable success was his insistence that religion and politics cannot be fully separated. Gandhi's conception of politics was very different from that of conventional politicians today. The goal of political struggle, Gandhi believed, is to reach agreement for the sake of social betterment. Political power is not an end in itself, but a means of enabling people to better their condition. Gandhi's social method was intended to achieve social justice and uplift the oppressed. He sought to free his people from colonial rule. He concluded, I cannot render this service without entering politics. He viewed politics as a religious commitment, a means of transcending narrow self-interest and embracing the common good through sacrificial service. If we genuinely wish to serve the needy and minister to the least of these, we must confront the structures of oppression. Charity is important, but it is not sufficient. It is a word to choke on, said the great Catholic leader Dorothy Day. We must ask, why are there so many people in need? And then confront the powers and the policies that perpetuate injustice and that imprison people in structures of oppression and poverty. John Howard Yoder taught that the ministry of Jesus is best understood as presenting not the avoidance of political options, but a particular social political option. The shape of that option is clear from the message of the gospel. It is, to bring, it is to bring justice and mercy to the poor and the afflicted, to seek reconciliation, to offer unconditional love toward others. The words and deeds of Jesus call us to lift up the lowly, free the captive, and love all, even our enemies. Jesus introduced a radical new way of addressing unjust authority. The gospel commands us to overcome evil with good. In Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, the passive language of resist not evil is followed immediately by the proactive command to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This is not an instruction for passivity and withdrawal. It is a call for active self-sacrificing love to overcome evil. The Lord's Prayer declares, Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. The challenges of redemption 
are in the real world, in the here and now, where the pure ideals of divine perfection meet the imperfect realities of a sinful world. The Apostle Paul calls us to be fellow workers with God in moving the world closer to the kingdom. The fact that we cannot achieve perfect love in this fallen world is not an argument for failing to follow Christ's call for active compassion. The goal of Christian social ethics is not perfection, but a less imperfect world, said Yoder. Christianity demands not the pursuit of impossible utopias, but action to create a social order that encourages good and restrains evil, that makes an imperfect world more tolerable. We strive for what Yoder termed progress in tolerability. By engaging to overcome injustice, we are helping to shape society in conformity with ethical principles. As Yoder said, sin is vanquished every time a Christian in the power of God chooses the better instead of the good. That this triumph over sin is incomplete changes in no way the fact that it is possible. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. emphasized the reality of social evil. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> Dr. King emphasized the reality of social evil, which he described as stark, grim, and colossally real. As an African-American suffering the degrading abuses of racial segregation, King was all too aware of the human capacity for evil. King realized that ethical appeals alone cannot guarantee justice and bring about the beloved kingdom. He agreed with Reinhold Niebuhr that power continues to exploit weakness until it is challenged by countervailing power. Political pressure and collective action are necessary to overcome social evil. He gave his life to the quest for a constructive form of political power to achieve justice. Dr. King described power as, quote, the ability to achieve purpose, the strength required to bring about social, political, or economic changes. In this sense, power is not only desirable but necessary. It is the means by which we attempt to implement the demands of love. King spoke eloquently of the need to combine power with love. One of the greatest problems of history, he said, is that the concepts of love and power are usually contrasted as polar opposites. Love is identified with a resignation of power, power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. This memorable photo of the civil rights era shows Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, arm in arm with Dr. King, he's the second person to Dr. King's left, marching in the famous pilgrimage from Selma to Montgomery in March 1965. Heschel taught that God is intimately involved in human affairs. In his famous book, God in Search of Man, he wrote of God seeking co-workers to help shape the divine purpose. Human beings serve God through the search for truth and the quest for a more compassionate and just society. 
When our conscience calls us to action, it is our moral duty to follow, to give ourselves selflessly to others. The commitment to social justice, in Heschel's view, is an act of worship. Heschel practiced what he preached and was an active opponent of the Vietnam War and a supporter of the civil rights movement. He described marching through Selma as a spiritual sojourn. He said, I felt as though my legs were praying. Dorothy Day often said the same. The leader of the Catholic worker, a great voice for peace and uplifting the poor, she often worked to help those who were the least of these. As she stood in the serving line to feed the homeless or marched against war, she proclaimed, I don't need to be on my knees to be praying. When we are helping the needy, when we are working against war, we are worshiping God. Which brings us back to that personal ethical choice that I began with. Can we be praying as we enter the polling booth? I believe we can, and that we must exercise that right. We must vote because so many have sacrificed before us to gain that right. Think of the women who struggled for 80 years to gain the right to be heard, the, the right to vote. One of Dorothy Day's first political acts was in the fight for women's suffrage in 1917 when she was arrested outside the White House. Think of those who died during the Civil Rights Movement to gain the right to vote. We dare not cast aside lightly a right for which so many gave their lives. We vote because choices are unavoidable. When we decide not to vote, that is a choice which cedes more power to the other side. The forces of reaction and militarism gain when the supporters of peace stay home. The 1% holds sway because they can brainwash or silence the rest of us. We cannot withdraw, and there is no place to hide. A valid case can be made that there is little or no difference between the two presidential candidates on matters of war and peace. It's true. Both believe in the legitimacy of war. Neither would hesitate to use military force in the pursuit of narrow interests of American power. Both candidates are very far indeed from the Gandhian ideal of spiritual politics. Their form of power rarely, if ever, reflects King's vision of justice through love. Yet, there are differences between them, and differences of degree matter. One candidate has ended a war and seeks to restrain military spending. The other takes a different view. On matters beyond war and peace, on questions of women's rights, health care, education, immigration rights, the role of government in helping the needy, the differences are great. What is the price of our withdrawal if we cede power to those who would degrade the least of these? What is the price of our moral purity if it means millions are denied access to health care? If immigrants are further hunted and deported? If women and families are denied reproductive services? 
if reactionary ideologies are further entrenched in the U.S. Supreme Court. I urge you to study the candidates and learn their positions on these critical issues. I hope you will participate in the political process despite its often sordid and dispiriting character. But don't just vote. Engage in social action more broadly. Work for justice. Follow the model of strategic nonviolent action that Gandhi and King developed and that so many others around the world have followed since, most recently in Egypt, the topic I will be addressing tomorrow evening. I had the opportunity to go to Egypt a couple times over the last year and meet with many young people, those who led a revolution. A few hundred young people, like yourselves, sparked an unarmed revolution in Egypt that succeeded in bringing down an entrenched military dictatorship. Millions of people poured into Tahrir Square, shown here, and in plazas all over the country to demand the right to choose their own political leaders. Hundreds died in that struggle so that their sisters and brothers could enjoy the right to vote for the first time in free elections. And earlier this year, the people of Egypt were able to vote for the first time in free and fair elections, choosing a new parliament and a new president. Certainly, there are many problems still in Egypt, and they are very far from true, genuine democracy, but they have made real progress, brought about through unarmed struggle. In this country, we take for granted rights that others must sacrifice to obtain. Fortunately, we are not oppressed by dictators. We live in a free society where elections occur as a matter of course. It's a great privilege. Our democracy is far from perfect, we know. Our system has many grievous flaws, most of all that money is so powerful and can buy elections. But this is all the more reason why people of conscience must be engaged, I believe. If we refuse to participate, our political freedoms will erode. We must vote to defend the freedoms we have, but we must be prepared to take to the streets when necessary to expand our rights and resist those who would steal our democracy and sell it to the highest bidder. So I close in saying that we should engage in the political order, but we should do so in the manner of Gandhi's spiritual politics. Let us follow Dorothy Day in dedicating our lives to uplifting the needy and working against war. In so doing, we can be faithful to the teachings of Jesus and can bear witness to his name, to his truth, here in the fallen world of human affairs. Let us be co-workers with God, helping to build the constructive power of love seeking justice. Thank you very much.